Friends, this summer, we made our way through the book of Colossians, Electio Continua. So we did the letter to the Colossians. And next week, as Pastor Stephen mentioned, we launch into our fall sermon series, Half-Truths, by Pastor Adam Hamilton. So if you're curious, like me, to hear some of the whole truths behind the half-truths that we say, things like God helps those who help themselves, or everything happens for a reason, we have something to learn together. Um, And I'm really excited for groups to form um, around this book so that we can take this discipleship opportunity really seriously. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. But before we have fun, we're gonna hang out with the prophets (laughs) uh, today. Uh, This week's Old Testament lectionary text is from the book of Jeremiah. And I was really excited to discover that because my life group has been studying Jeremiah through the chapter-by-chapter study book called Great and Hidden Things. So what Andrea and Kristen and I have been remembering together is that Jeremiah the prophet had a really tough and lonely job. In Jeremiah 1, God calls the very young prophet to, and I quote, uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. God says this to Jeremiah, I will pronounce my judgment on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me and burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. So get yourself ready, God says. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, they will fight against you. Sounds great, right? But God says, they will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you. Jeremiah's name means the Lord has raised up. And we learn through his prophetic life that just because God raises somebody up does not mean that people will listen. The people consistently push back against Jeremiah's warnings. The threat of destruction does not phase them. Knowing they've let God down has little effect on them. Jeremiah's pleading and compassionate feelings for them do not make a difference. These same patterns of disobedience and forgetfulness stubbornness and denial that kept God's people from God are still here today. And the God of Jeremiah, the God who cares intimately about the way people live their lives, that God is still here today. Jeremiah was called by God to bring a message of judgment, wrath, and doom against the people of Judah. Aren't you glad you're here this morning? As you can imagine, they did not like hearing it, and that's a really understandable response to have. So as we encounter this text this morning, I invite you to notice, because you're God's people too, I invite you to notice the ways you resist the passage. You might resist it because there are words you don't recognize, like Baal or Cyprus or Kadar or Cistern. 
You may resist this passage because it's not specifically addressed to you or to North Holland. You may resist this passage because it stirs up something in you, some shame or guilt, something that has yet to be uncovered. Or you might resist it because it's Labor Day and I'm making you work hard by listening to this intense passage. Regardless, it's always our joy and charge to explore God's word together. So we're going to do that together now. Let's pray. Lord, before this world's days even began, your word was in the beginning, and it was with you, and it was you. The mystery of that brings us to our knees. Yet today you allow us to open your word and know you better, so we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts open to your spirit as we seek you. Amen. Friends, turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to read together Jeremiah 2, verses 4 through 13. It's Jeremiah 2, verses 4 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kadar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are no gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) In this text, God is recalling the story. Did you hear it? The story of his relationship 
with the people. And it's their past that God presents as evidence for why he should be trusted as their God. That story starts in verse 6. God delivered the people from a land of brutal captivity, Egypt. He guided them through an inhospitable and unforgiving wilderness and provided them with a plentiful promised land. And according to God, they completely defiled this good gift by turning to worthless idols. They chased after the wind, the Hebrew says, pursuing a foolishness that goes nowhere and establishes nothing. Even the people we most expect to have their act together, the religious leaders and lawmakers, they rebel against God by neglecting God's presence altogether. They do not ask where God is because they don't care to know or even to ask. They have moved on in this text from their partnership with God to taking on the promised land alone. They depend on themselves. They are working so hard to chase after worthlessness. Isn't it incredible that the one question we've been created to ask, where is God, can sometimes be the hardest, most uncomfortable, most unnatural question to ask. A central part of the people's identity is remembering what God has done for them. Jeremiah 2 begins with a recounting of the good old days when the people were faithful to the covenant. Jeremiah 2, 1 through 3, if you still have your Bibles open, says this. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, all who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. But then in our passage, the prophet quickly switches gears as God accuses the people of forgetting what God has done for them, which results in their unfaithfulness to the covenant. Here we see the wrong that the people are guilty of. They stopped seeking the presence of God, and they stopped telling the story of God's work. The people forgot what it means to be God's people. They lost their identity and they placed their hope in worthless things. So God brings their amnesia to light. God asked them, what wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me? The answer is obvious as God hasn't been unfaithful to the covenant. God has not done something wrong. And while God has always been faithful, the people's unfaithfulness can be tracked back through their history. It is not any injustice of God that has driven the people to unfaithfulness, but rather the temptation of worthless things. God says to look to Cyprus 
the furthest known western land of the Phoenicians, and to Kadar, the furthest known eastern land of the desert Bedouin, and see that even they and all the nations in between are faithful to their pagan religious practices. If these nations can be faithful to their foreign and empty deities, why is it that Israel can't be faithful to the single true God, to a God who has proven his love and commitments endlessly? Why is that? It is not what God hoped for, but it's where they are. The people have committed two sins. They have renounced God. They have replaced God. Instead of drinking God's living water, they've turned to broken cisterns that cannot hold water. John C. Holbert says this about cisterns. In ancient Israel, as well as in all dry primitive cultures all over the world, it became imperative that water be saved. The average rainfall in the southern deserts of Israel and on down to Cairo, Egypt, is less than a half inch per year. It is not unusual for Cairo to receive no rain at all for upwards of two years. So it was crucial that systems be devised to save and to store water for those long dry spells. The simplest way, a good place to start, is to dig a hole in the ground. And one can imagine that the very ancient inhabitants of that part of the world did that. They dug holes in the ground. It was, as most can see, a very poor solution to the problem because water has this way of moving to the lowest level, and without some way of stopping that movement, much of it is going to seep into the soil below the hole. So digging a hole, probably not gonna work. So some inventor or inventors at some point began to experiment with various coverings over the soil to prevent the loss of water. So uh, what happened was they used this kind of a limestone Uh, throughout the Middle East, and you can see some of these cisterns that have limestones along the perimeter perimeter, um, that served as cisterns that were used to hold water. Still, though, that limestone would get cracks in it. So you can imagine with me that eager parents or children would get up early to go collect water from their cistern and discover that the water had leaked out overnight. That was a cistern, a hole in the ground, sometimes covered by limestone to hold water. If you only have about a half an inch of water a year, you can imagine if water's been sitting there a while, it might not taste very good. It might not be very clean. That's a cistern. In a modern context, where water flows from taps and travels with us in our water bottles, it's kind of difficult to grasp the force of this metaphor. Many of us live with water security throughout the year, and we give little thought to the processes that make it possible for us to have water. This metaphor that God uses, cisterns and living water, it's about idolatry. Idolatry. The tricky thing about idolatry is that often when we're doing it, we have no idea that we're doing it. It feels like we're worshiping God. Or it seems like we are pursuing good ends ordained by God. 
We do not perceive building cisterns as idolatry because we are focused on the good task of not wasting rainwater, on being prepared for the drought, on assuring that our families will have what they need to survive. We may even pray to God for rain and offer up thanksgiving when the rain does come and the cistern does hold. We do not recognize that building the cistern in the first place and drinking from it, that is what is idolatrous. If you would just let go of cistern building, says God, you would see that you already have enough living water. If you would just look away, you could see it springs forth before you. Cistern building is like a chasing after the wind, pursuing a foolishness that goes nowhere and establishes nothing. So why do you put so much of yourself into it? Why do you exchange God's glory for such a worthless task? We do not remember that God should be more precious to us than water is to our body. God has a similar warning for the people in Deuteronomy 8. Hear these words from Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 20. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. God gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, your Lord is God. It is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestor to, as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I know, it's tough to say. Thanks be to God. This text, the Jeremiah one and the one from Deuteronomy, reminds me of a phrase my husband often quotes when I tell him I'm giving up sugar or caffeine. Old habits die hard. That's what he says. Old habits do die hard. The phrase here meaning that certain patterns in our lives are deeply ingrained and not easily changed, much like my addictions to sugar and caffeine. Sometimes we don't even notice these habits until they're disrupted or an intentional interruption is introduced. I've had a lot of experiences in my life where old habits have died hard. And the first example that comes to me, because I encounter it with our youth often, is when you first get braces. 
Uh, so when I got braces, uh, I had to learn how to talk again because I had a new lisp. I had to learn how to eat again while avoiding all of the brackets, and I had to learn how to sleep on my back because when I turned on my face, it was so uncomfortable. And then I had to re all, relearn all of this when they added a headgear to the mix on the, on the outside. My sister's here too, we remember the headgear. Um, and then when I got my braces off, I had to learn again, how do you talk and eat and sleep without the braces and with all the headgear? It was a humongous 18-month roller coaster of breaking habits. I have a lot of old habits that I may address at some stage. I bite my nails. Like I said, I'm addicted to caffeine. I'm a night owl. And if I attempt to change any of those habits, they're going to put up a good fight. In my walk with God, I've got some old habits. Some of those old habits are God-given gifts. They reflect the ways that by design, I turn to the living water and help others do the same. Some of those old habits are really cistern-focused, and they get between God and I. The tricky thing about idolatry is that often when we're doing it, we have no idea we're doing it. Idolatry is an old habit, and it puts up a good fight. So be careful when you eat and are satisfied, like we heard in Deuteronomy, when you build homes and settle down, and when what you have multiplies. We experienced an amazing multiplication here at church. Be careful when you pursue satisfaction, comfort, and expansion, if you are not asking the question, where is God? Heed this warning from our forefathers, Moses and Jeremiah. They know old habits die hard. In our text today, God's people stopped seeking the presence of God. They may have looked like they were worshiping God but they did not tell the story. In scripture, God and God's people tell the story of their covenant relationship over and over, again and again. The Psalms recount God's creative action in the beginning. The prophets remind us of the Exodus as Jeremiah does in our text today. And even Jesus remembers stories from the Old Testament as he reframes the good news of the gospel for the Gentiles. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past is critical. Seeing God clearly in our day-to-day -day is essential as we break down old habits of following after idols. At the end of the day on mission trips and retreats, I like to ask our youth where they saw God that day. Where did you see God today? What's a God sighting you have? We did this in Vacation Bible School as well, which was a lot of fun. Uh, the first night or two on a mission trip, I noticed that collectively, the youth are usually able to think of at least two or three ways that they saw God, typically in the morning devotional or in nature. In Alaska, we talked a lot about seeing God um, through the mountains when we were there. And as the week goes on, their capacity to see God more increases. They see God in scripture. They see God in prayer. They see God in creation. They see God in one another and in the work that they're doing. It takes practice, but exercises like this, where did you see God today? Open our eyes to God's presence. Naming where I've seen God makes me aware of the places I can't see God because something 
is in my way. Our text this morning invites us to wonder how long it's been since we've noticed where God is. Our text this morning invites us to get clear about the cistern-building habits we have. Our text invites us to return to the living water, which is indeed always overflowing, always overflowing, always right there, more than enough. God gives this encouragement to the people. I feel like I should pass along that encouragement. Um, And this is from Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34. God says this, this is the covenant I will make with the people after a time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on, the heart, on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord. Pray with me. God, you know us. And in knowing us, you already see clearly the old habits we cling to, the idols we pursue over our pursuit of you. God, give us courage to notice and name those patterns in our own lives and to offer them to you with sincerity. Surround us with people who will affirm our desire to follow you faithfully. You're our living water, a God of abundance and grace. Renew us today, God. In your holy name we pray. Amen.